0: Your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel 26, 1 Samuel 26. We've been working our way through uh, the biography of David. Um, He will eventually become king, you know, either that or he's going to die trying, (laughs) as if you've been with us, that seems to be the story. 1 Samuel 26, I failed to look it up in our Pew Bibles, but it is before you get to 2 Samuel. So I don't know if that helps, but uh, that's what I got for you. And with that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. <clears throat> the writer of First Samuel writes under inspiration of in the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse one. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah saying, "Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakilah, which is on the east of Jeshimon?" So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with three thousand chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakalah, which is beside the road east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him in the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay. And Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army, Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. And David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeru- Zeruiah, Who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is in his head and the jar of water, and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, "'Will you not answer, Abner?' Then Abner answered, "'Who are you who calls to the king?' And David said to Abner, "'Are you not a man who is like you at Israel?' "'Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? "'For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your lord. "'This thing that you have done is not good, "'and as the lord lives, you deserve to die "'because you have not kept watch over your lord, "'the lord's anointed. "'And now see where the king's spear and jar of water "'that was at his head.'" Saul recognized David's voice and said, "'Is this your voice, my son, David?' David said, "'It is my voice, my lord, O king.'" And he said, "'Why does my lord pursue after his servant? "'For what have I done? "'What evil is on my hands?' Now, therefore, let my lord the king hear the word of his servant. It is, if it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day, that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now, therefore, let my blood fall to the earth, away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a, 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 a in the mountain, a partridge in the mountain then Saul said, I have sinned. Return my son David, for I will no no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may He deliver me out of all tribulation. And Saul said to David, "Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them." So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Go, Lord, prayer. Father, as always, we ask you to open our hearts we would receive your word, our mind that we would understand it, our eyes that we would see your glory, our ears that we would hear and heed your word, our mouth that we would speak the truth of the gospel, and our hands and our feet that we will go in obedience. May we be transformed by your word, by your son, and for your glory. And may I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. You may you be seated. I mentioned last week that we, growing up, would have what, we, what our parents called family meetings. And what these family meetings were trials, right? We were essentially put on trial. Uh, our parents were uh, uh, the judge, jury, and uh, their favorite part was the executioner part. And uh, you could not bear witness against your sibling, but you could bear witness against yourself, right? I mean, they were okay with that, uh, but we were never going to, you know... Commit to that. So, so th- these are our, our family meetings. And at almost every meeting, uh, uh, our parents would say the same thing to my brother and I. Because we had a habit of, of uh, I remember one time, um, um, I, uh, I didn't know what the thermometer thing did in the refrigerator. So I turned it down to where it was warm. And it ruined everything in the refrigerator. Well, now I know what that does. There's only one way to find out. And so whenever Mom and Dad got on us, she says, "That you guys, you can't do that." We'd say, "I know," but but the refrigerator is there to get stuff out, right? I know it's for food. I know it's got to be cold in there. I know. Well, if you know, they would always say, "Why did you do it?" I know. <laughs> you know what are you gonna say to something like that? Right? Almost every time we had our family meetings, uh, it would come down to this. My brother and I were particularly bad at this. I know, I know, I know. Well, if you knew, then why did you do it? After all, why is it we keep having the same conversation? You know what you shouldn't do, and you know what you should do, but you're still somehow getting those two confused. So it's the same pattern over and over again. If you've been with us over the last several months, going through the story of David, that, that pattern of Saul saying, I know I shouldn't hunt down the Lord's anointed. I know I shouldn't throw my spear at your head. I know I shouldn't round up an army and try to kill a single person. I know I shouldn't do this. And yet what do we find ourselves? Reading the same story over and over and over again. In fact, if you recall, two weeks ago, we were in chapter 24, is the story where David cuts off the the edge of of Saul's robe. And and one of the things that people notice immediately when you come to chapter 26 is it's almost exactly like chapter 24. Let me give you a few of the parallels between chapters 24 and chapters 26. Uh, David is fleeing from Saul in the wilderness. That's pretty much chapters 18 to 26 at this point. He's running from, from Saul. David is given an opportunity to kill Saul. Right in in chapter twenty four it was in the cave. Here in chapter twenty six is why Saul is sawing logs in uh, asleep. Uh, ch- uh, thirdly, David's party suggests this is divine providence. Clearly, the Lord has laid Saul in this position so you can take his throne by taking his life. Fourthly, David refuses to kill the Lord's anointed. He has the opportunity, but he refuses to do to, to what everyone wants him to do. David takes evidence of sparing Saul's life. So he, he takes the, uh, uh, the robe of Saul and, and has a conversation with him saying, see, you see what I did? In this case, he takes his spear and the water uh, right next to him uh, on his bedside. And then David and Saul speak directly to one another right? They, they have a conversation and it, it's always the same. David saying, why are you doing this? Saul saying, I know. And then they go home, right? And that's it. And then finally, Saul recognizes David is innocent and will take the throne. I mean, in many ways, these are the same story. Now, the details are different, but, but the outline is very much the same. Let's see if we can simplify it. Let's start with the opportunity in verses 1 to 12. Now, once again, in the first three verses, the Ziphites betray David. If you don't remember the Ziphites, the Ziphites were protected by David and his band of merry men from the Philistines. And what did the Ziphites do as, a, as a, uh, uh, a gift of thanksgiving to David? They betrayed him and handed him over to the, the, or tried to hand him over to Saul. Now, to, to, to give them some credit here, or at least understand their their thinking. While David was protecting the Ziphites from the Philistines, Saul was murdering all the priests at Nob. And so after someone does something like that, then they come knock on your door. (laughs) <laughs> you know, you're, you're going to do whatever it is they ask you, okay? And so they have betrayed David twice now. And so when they, they tell Saul where he is, Saul rounds up his 3,000 choice men to deal with an army of 600 men. We talked about that with the story of Nabal last week in chapter 25. Um, then verses 4 and 5, you may recall that David was previously very passive in how he's dealt with Saul. He's running and he's hiding, Now we see David very proactive in his approach in dealing with Saul. Now he sends spies out to figure out what is going on with Saul, where he is. And through this, he discovers where he is staying and when he is most vulnerable to attack. And he is most vulnerable, of course, when he is asleep. And verse six is the game plan. He gathers together Ahimelech the Hittite and Abishai. Now, Ahimelech the Hittite, Uh, is never mentioned again in the story of David. He's likely a mercenary. So, of course, his name will be on the quiz at the end. Okay? And in three weeks from now, see if you remember. Abishai, on the other hand, is David's nephew. Um, Zeruiah was David's sister. And given that Abishai is identified by his mother and not traditionally by his father, suggests possibly that uh, Abishai's father, David's brother-in-law, had died tragically. But in verse 7 through 12, they they discover Saul. So the three men go into Saul's camp. They find him sleeping. And, And again, we see the parallels. In chapter 24, Saul is in a vulnerable position of relieving himself. In chapter 26, Saul is in the vulnerable position of sleeping. And there is David standing over him with a golden opportunity to take his life. In fact, you see there in verse 7 that the spear is in the ground. That spear is there for the purpose of protecting Saul. If something were to happen, Saul's got a weapon. But that only works if the enemy isn't leaning over you with your spear, right? So so this weapon of protection is now uh, a source of great danger for him. Now, we don't know how uh, the spies snuck into Saul's camp. Uh, I'm sure Hollywood will release that movie soon uh, whenever they run out of superhero storylines. But they will release this and we'll get all those answers for us. And again, like the men of valor, chapter 24, David is told, God has given you this opportunity. You should take it. And of course, in ancient world, there is no quicker way to the throne than by murdering the king. Whoever kills the king becomes king. And then we wonder... Why there were so many kings murdered in the ancient world. In fact, this is why the peaceful, uh, uh, the peaceful transition of power in America is one of the most unique things in human history. Uh, that we haven't come to Inauguration Day. I mean, it's 2020. I mean, it's going to happen probably. But we haven't come to, to Inauguration Day with two different armies, right? I mean, we haven't done that yet. But, hey, anything can happen. You know my theory Come December 31st, scientists are going to discover three more months of 2020. It's going to happen. Um, but Obishai, in fact, is so uh, zealous for David, he asked permission to murder the king for David. He says, I only need one strike. I won't need a second. And just as he did in the cave, David said, no, we're not going to take advantage of this golden opportunity. And the reason is the same. It is wrong to take the Lord's anointed. It is wrong to take life. Vengeance is God's. In fact, notice what it says there in verse 10. David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him or his day will come to die or he will go down into battle and perish. Notice what David is doing. He's saying vengeance is the Lord's. It is not mine. Clearly, he has learned from his uh, experience with Nabal in the previous chapter. Remember in chapter 25, he didn't take Nabal's life, but Nabal, which means fool, remember, uh, ended up dying suddenly because of his own foolishness. Here, David is submitting to the timing of God's sovereignty. He knows he must choose holiness and obedience over vengeance and violence. And so in verses 11 through 12, he, uh, instead of killing Saul, he takes his spear and he takes his uh, cup of water next to him. And this will be evidence later uh, that, Saul, that David had been in his bedchambers. I want to highlight real quick and make a point on verse 12, if you don't mind. There, verse 12 says, So David took the spear and the jar of water from his head, Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all Asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon Now, that's easy to skip, but if you know your Bible, uh, you, you probably may recognize that this phrase shows up quite a bit in the Bible, and it's almost always a significant context. Let me give you a few examples here. In Genesis 2, God caused Adam to go into a deep sleep. And what happens as a result of that deep sleep? Uh, it was amnesia for surgery, right? Uh, he, he, he takes out a rib. And uh, out of that comes, comes Eve, right? So Adam goes to sleep, a single man, wakes up a married man. If only it was that easy, guys. It's not. I'm sorry. You have to try now. It's awful. You can, you can blame the fall. Man, that would be a lot easier. But if it was like that, well, I'll hold back jokes. Uh, but... Um, Genesis 15, the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And remember, this was the story where uh, uh, God passes through the severed carcasses because God is, is signing the, the covenants. He's put himself under covenant that he will, in fact, bless Abraham. Right. So it was an ancient Near Eastern culture at this time. Abram can't do it. He's asleep in a deep sleep, but God does because covenant is a one-way direction. God makes covenants with us. And then here's here's a fun one in a prophetic sense. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, your eyes are the prophets, and covered your heads, that is the seers, right? So so, so what what do we do with this? You'll notice that when God puts us under a deep sleep, biblically speaking, it is usually in the context of either covenant or God is doing something unique in history. And so with with Adam is the covenant of marriage. With Abram, it is the covenant of of Abraham and the promises of of Israel. And here in Isaiah, it is a reminder of what has happened is that God has closed your eyes and judgment is going to come under his sovereign care. We see something similar here. God puts Saul under this deep sleep, allowing the spies to come in. Thus, David must choose, will he be like Saul and be a murderer? Or will he be like the one who pursues the heart of God? Well, that's the opportunity they're given. This leads to the exchange in verses 13 to 25. They, they, they sneak into the tent, uh, and then they have to sneak out, which is usually the more difficult part. And now he is at a safe distance. He's at the top of a hill, and, and they start shouting at the, the, the army down there. Now, this is real social distancing, don't you think? I mean, if you don't like that term, it's a peaceful protest, okay? Whatever term works for you, this is what exactly what they're doing. Words have no meanings anymore. So, so, um, um, so Abner, and then they shout at Abner. Hey, Abner is the king's uh, commander. His primary job is to keep Saul safe. Verily I say unto thee, he, didn't, he ain't doing a very good job at it, all Right? If you can just waltz into the king's tent with, with evil intentions, you ain't doing your job very good. He's the, he's the head of the secret service of the king. And so David calls him out and says, how is it that we were able to do this? And what does Abner do? He pleads the fifth. He doesn't talk at all. Uh, I, I, I don't want to say anything lest I indict myself and, and lose my own head. right? Uh, Saul would have typically have executed the man uh, who failed in this way. Uh, in 17 to 24, Saul and David speak to each other from a distance. Now, you notice in verse 17 uh, that Saul refers to David twice in this passage as my son. This corresponds in chapter 24, parallel, where David refers to Saul as my father. And throughout this entire time, though David is hunted down to be executed, David always treats Saul with respect and the honor due with his position. It is striking because chances are most of us wouldn't do that. We would complain about them on Facebook And then we complain that not enough people liked our comment on Facebook destroying that other person's character, right? This is what we would do. David went another direction. Um, And so David speaks to Saul. And David, he continues to be flabbergasted by Saul's hatred for him. To David, it's arbitrary and unnecessary. And, of course, David's right. David wants peace. Saul wants violence. And there's no rationale behind Saul's violence. Remember, we've said this over and over again, virtually every week. There is no rationale to hatred. Once you hate someone, once you hate a group of people, you would do things, say things, and act out in ways that are irrational. If you don't believe me, you need to turn on your TV because this defines our culture. We hate each other in our country, and so we do irrational Dangerous things towards each other. We want each other to suffer, and as a result, we are all suffering because of it. And notice verse seven. David again compares himself to a flea. Now, what is a flea? A flea is a small creature that is very annoying. And he's saying, "Look, Saul, you you rounding up three thousand men in hunt of a flea. Now that's pretty ridiculous." But why would you hunt a flea, though small, very annoying? And no matter what Saul does, he can't get rid of this little flea. And David says, look, look, I may be a pest, but I am not the most important thing on your itinerary. You've got more important things to deal with. But also notice that from David's perspective, sometimes the righteous suffer without rationale. Sometimes the righteous just suffer. So David states that if he has violated Saul's trust, or violated God's law, then let the Lord condemn and judge him. And what does Saul do in verse 21? You see it there? Saul said, "I have sinned. Return my son, David, for I will no more do harm, do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly, have made a great mistake. Remember what we said about Saul's repentance. It's not repentance, it is regrets. There's a big difference. Because we saw in chapter 24, had Saul truly repented, there would not be a chapter 26 that looks like this. Regret is what Saul is doing. He's regret he got caught. He's regret that he's losing. He's regret he's got egg on his face. But he is not repenting before God that he is a sinner. And finally, in verse 25, we see that this is the last time these two will speak to each other in the narrative. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. This is it. If you've been with us in our study of David and you're tired of the same story, Saul hunting, David running, this is it. The hunt is over with. The two will not meet again in the narrative. Well, that leads to what's the point? What's the point of all this? You may think, well... It's the same stories before, so everything we said then applies here. It's, it's a lot of parallels, but it's not the same story, particularly given its context and the lessons he learns from ball. Can I offer just three points of application as quickly as I can? Church is starting early now, thanks to COVID and, and all the things we changed, so you shouldn't be hungry, so it's okay if we go a little extra. Okay. I, know, I know how you state workers work. You eat at noon. I know this because in Frankfurt, this is good advice. If you eat at 1130, you can get a restaurant. Eat at noon. You can't get anywhere because of state workers. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. amen. All right, so what's the point? First, forgiveness is endless. Forgiveness is endless. For several chapters, we have seen the same pattern, haven't we? Saul hunts to kill. David runs and holds no grudges. Yet throughout the story, we see this unraveling of trust. You remember that David initially returned back to work after Saul tried to kill him the first few times. He's not going to do that now. In chapter 24, David and Saul were face to face. Now there's a great distance between them. David holds no grudges, but trust is eroding. What's made this series of narratives of Hunter and praise is how quick David is and how ready he is to forgive Saul I'm reminded of what we find in Matthew chapter 18 when Peter comes up to Jesus and says Lord how often do I have to forgive my brother is it seven times Jesus says no 70 times can I, can I give you why that's, that text is so important to our understanding of forgiveness, which is illustrated by David in this series of unfortunate events? The first is, is that according to the rabbis in the first century, one was only required to forgive someone three times. Now, let's be honest. Three times would be a step forward for some of us here, right? We would be okay if we learned to forgive the coach of our favorite basketball team three times. Let's just be honest, right? Let alone our neighbor, our co-worker, or our, our in-laws, Right? But Peter thinks he's more than doubling it. It's the perfect number. Seven. You can't get any better than that. Jesus says you can't get better than that. Times it by ten. And that's the thing. Is he, he times it by ten. Now, if you are keeping track of, all right, I forgave Aunt Betty this week because of the comment she wrote online, that's number 14. We're almost there. If you're doing that, you're doing life wrong and you should stop immediately. The point isn't that you keep a record. Paul tells us that love keeps no such record. But rather the idea is that that you're just going to keep forgiving. It is not three or seven, but seven multiplied. The perfect number multiplied. And, and, And that is why we need to talk about when it comes to the endlessness of forgiveness, we need to talk about what forgiveness is and what it is not. I find this a helpful way because people often get confused with this. First of all, Let's talk about what forgiveness is not. Let's narrow down our options here. First of all, we'll do this quickly because we've done this before. Forgiveness is not denying that sin occurred or diminishing its evil. It isn't saying, ah, oh, no big deal. You know, it's just water off my back. No, you haven't slept for three days because of this. And don't deny that sin actually occurred. To deny sin is to ignore sin. And it is to deny the corrosive effect of sin on you and on others. Many people think they are forgiven people because they, they acted like it didn't happen. As a result, you're affecting the people around you because we have the wrong idea of what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not enabling sin, right? This is similar to it. it, is, it when you ignore sin, you enable sin. That is not what forgiveness is or does. Forgiveness is not a covering up of sin committed against us. Again, it's, it is not denying it. Fourthly, forgiveness is not trust, whatever number we're on, um, Forgiveness is not trust. Forgiveness happens in a moment, but trust will take time. I think a lot of times we get confused by this. We assume they're the same. We think, well, I said I'm sorry, right? Can't we act like, you know, nothing happened? No, you can't. Because you can't deny sin and its effects. No, you need to realize that the trust has been eroded here. And trust is something that can be gained back. But it takes much longer than Forgiveness. Finally, forgiveness is not reconciliation. Those two are two different things. Forgiveness is a, is, is a one-way street. You control forgiveness right here, right now. Chances are there is someone in your life you need to forgive. There's someone in your life you need to seek forgiveness from. You have 100% control of that, but you only have 50% control over reconciliation. Forgiveness, for, for reconciliation is a two-way street. It takes two people for reconciliation to take place. Now you can't get to reconciliation without first dealing with confession and forgiveness. This is true of every relationship throughout the history of time. Forgiveness is not trust nor is it reconciliation. What is forgiveness then? Again briefly, first of all, forgiveness is a canceling a debt owed to you. The sinner is free from making repayments. It isn't saying, Okay, I'll forgive you, but first you must do fifty jumping jacks. That's not forgiveness. It's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is the debt is paid. You are forgiven. Now, you can do that when you are centered upon the cross of Christ. Because you already know enough blood has been shed. And Christ has satisfied the sins against you and committed by you. Forgiveness is a canceling of debt owed to you. Secondly, forgiveness is removing the control the offender has over you. I'm willing to bet right now this is where you are. Oh, I've forgiven them, but, but let me remind you what they did once again. And they are officially living rent-free in your head. Consuming and destroying your soul. Forgiveness is to, is to keep them from, from uh, uh, controlling you. How many of us do this? Chances are there's someone right now you haven't spoken to in perhaps decades because they hurt your feelings or something happened, and you assume they think the same thing about you. But if you were to go to them, you know what you'll discover? They don't remember you. They don't remember what happened, nor do they care. They've been living rent free in your head, affecting your soul and your spiritual health unnecessarily because you haven't forgiven, truly forgiven. When the Bible says forgive and forget, it means to choose not to remember. We would do well to learn to do that. Forgiveness is forsaking revenge. This is David illustrates this well for us, doesn't he? He forgives. He doesn't have to swing the sword because those who live by the sword, Saul learns, will die by the sword. Forgiveness chooses a better path. Further, forgiveness is an ongoing process. Perhaps it's where you are right, here, right now. C.S. Lewis said, quote, There is no use in talking as if forgiveness were easy. We all know the old joke, you've given up smoking once, I've given up a dozen times. In the same way, I could say of a certain man, have I forgiven him for what he did that day? I've forgiven him more times than I can count. For we find that the work of forgiveness has to be done over and over again. I do believe that is true. We must forgive, we must be forgiving. Because it is a process, a healing process, that without forgiveness we will never find true healing. Fifthly, forgiveness is costly. Do I need to prove this outside of the cross? In order for you to be forgiven by your Lord and Savior, it costs blood and a life. Forgiveness is costly. Why do we think that our forgiveness was costly, but for us to forgive others it shouldn't be costly? It is costly. It is made possible only by the blood of Jesus. But remember, the debt we owe Christ is greater than the debt anyone may ever owe us. Finally, forgiveness is courage. It is easy to hold on to grudges. You may get a television show or a podcast out of it. But it is hard. It takes courage to forgive. John MacArthur is right when he says one person has analyzed forgiveness in an interesting sort of prosaic way. He writes this, quote, "...only the brave know how to forgive. It is the most refined and generous element of human virtue. Cowards have done good deeds and performed kind acts. Cowards have even fought and conquered, but cowards never forgive." It is not in their nature, their hearts. The power to forgive flows only from a strength and a greatness of soul, conscious of its own humility and security and able to rise above all the little temptations of resenting every fruitless attempt to steal its happiness. See, bitterness is the poison pill you take hoping the other person dies. And it takes courage not to take that pill, but to choose forgiveness. One more thing that Jesus says about the 70 times 70 it reverses cycles of revenge. There's a reason why Jesus says, no, not three times, not seven times, but 70 times. You want to know why? There's this little known guy in Genesis 4. Those who who tracked with us earlier this year in our study of Genesis may remember this. The man's name is Lamech. He's a descendant of Cain. You remember what he did? If Cain, he says after he killed a guy, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, he says, then Lamech 70-fold. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's taken us all the way back to the beginning and saying, look, you must forgive to the extent that Lamech seeks revenge. Forgiveness must be greater than that of revenge. Look at our our day and age right now. Turn on the news. Are we choosing vengeance? Are we choosing forgiveness? And are we better off in choosing violence, hatred, and this nonsense over choosing forgiveness? Jesus says we must be better than Lamech. We must be Gospel-focused. So not only do we learn that forgiveness is endless, briefly in this text we learn that life is precious. David demonstrates for us a holistic pro-life approach and an ethic here. To be pro-life not only condemns abortion, and it should, and everything has to do with bioethics, embryonic stem cell research, and everything else, but it protects life and defends the natural rights of everyone. This is why racism is evil. Violence is unacceptable. War must be a last resort. Equal blind justice is vital and love is a priority. Christians would do well if we were pro-life, not just in the womb, but all the way to the end in the tomb. David refuses to take Saul's life for his own benefit. He says it is wrong to take the life of the Lord's anointed. He has a robust, holistic pro-life ethic. And he's saying that if you're made in the image of God, you have dignity and worth and it is worth protecting. And so David will will protect even his enemy. How much we must learn of that in, in our day and time. But to take Saul's life for his own personal career advancement would be unethical and immoral. Rather, David trusts God With vengeance, and he chooses gospel behavior. One last thing to mention briefly. Morality trumps circumstances. The true character of a man is not seen in a press release. But when he is alone, when he chooses selflessness over selfishness, and when he does the right thing regardless of the cost. Here is David, pressured to do the expedient thing, he chooses to do the right thing. He chooses forgiveness over vengeance. He chooses life over violence. He chooses righteousness over selfishness. Morality trumps circumstances. We've got a long way to go in our culture, don't we? And this is why the gospel matters. All of this is found in Christ. Who though was nailed to a tree, chose forgiveness. Though ridiculed by others, chose the cross. And when given the opportunity, chose to die for you and me. May we do the same. For we wouldn't be here unless the son of David made those decisions. Let's pray.